Welcome back to another episode of A Desi Woman Podcast. I am your host, Sonia Gokwai, and the voices I am seeking may have never been heard before, but their stories deserve to be told. What is a Desi Woman? She is a dynamic, fearless, and strong woman. She is your mother, your grandmother, your daughter, your sister. She is every one of us who is on an endless pursuit of self-empowerment and fulfillment. I am Sonia Gokhlai, and I am a Desi woman. Hello, and welcome to another edition of A Desi Woman Podcast. I'm your host, Sonia Gokhlai, and today I am so excited to be joined by Usha Reddy, who is the current mayor of Manhattan, Kansas. Welcome, Usha. Yeah, thanks for having me on. Uh, It's a pleasure to be here this evening. I am delighted that you agreed to join me on this podcast. As I came across your story and your profile several months ago, I have to acknowledge it was one of the most inspiring stories of human courage that I've come across. And you've really helped me in immeasurable ways just by learning about your perseverance and resilience as an immigrant to this country and now an elected official in a city in the United States, almost an unthinkable story of success that we don't hear all too often, and a minority woman as well. And so I wanted to start with a bit about your childhood and growing up and some of the harrowing experiences that you have overcome. Sure. Is there anything else that you wanted to add before we dive in? (laughs) No, no, I think that's uh, that's good background, and um, and then we can just go from there. Okay, great. Well, I want to say that it takes a tremendous amount of courage to come forward as a survivor of sexual assault, but even more so in the Indian American community. Since we are controlled by patriarchy and gender bias, and largely because the financial control in our communities is almost singularly assigned to the men in our communities, even if women do work outside the home. What has been the reaction of the Indian community and those closest to you as you revealed the horrible abuse that you suffered as a child? Yeah. So just a few steps back. So I think, you know, this happened from the ages of 10 to 16. And we came to the United States uh, when I was eight in 1973. And Grew up primarily in Columbus, Ohio, Youngstown, Ohio, Gahanna, Ohio. And, um, but for a brief period between 10 and 12, we lived in Winchester, Virginia. And that's where the ordeal began. And then we moved back to Columbus, Ohio. So from 12 to 16, I was in Columbus, Ohio. And, um, you know, when you're a child, as it is, uh, you're very, Uh, conflicted by things that are going on around you. But one thing you do know is that your parents are supposed to be the role models or the ones that protect you and, uh, and you trust them unconditionally because you're just a child. And that's how I was going through life and trusting my two parents. And when this happened, the perpetrator was my father. So when it started to take place, the, the sexual abuse, it was scary because I didn't, first of all, know if this was normal, if people, if this is what normally happens in families, because we don't talk about it. And um, the other part was, once I realized, okay, this is really bad, I 
no, I didn't know how to even talk about it. I didn't want to tell anybody. One, I was scared to death that nobody would believe me. How do you prove such a thing? And two, um, that I might be removed from my family and put in foster care, or I might be separated from my brothers or my mother, and we all have to go back to India. Uh, we might, my dad might end up in jail, and we might not have any food. Or so all of these terrible, terrible scenarios and nightmares were going through my head. So I just kept quiet about it and just moved through life. And um, and, and as I became older in Columbus and started going to high school, it was the nights were a nightmarish, and uh, in the daytime, you know, I would just move through life, but. It was difficult for me to believe that nobody was understanding what was happening to me. Even though I didn't say it, I thought there was enough messages for people to figure out if I said, don't hug me right now or don't, uh, you need to stay away from me and things like that. People just threw that out to as um, a teenage girl just being rebellious or a teenage girl just being emotional. So it was always this other factors just overreacting and things like that. So as I grew um, became an adult woman. I, you know, told a few people around me, but the major consensus was just to move on with life. Just move past it. You're a strong enough person. Just move past it and um, live your life. And that's what I wanted to do. I never wanted to be a victim of anything. I don't think anybody wants to be a victim. And um, I felt I was strong enough to just move on with life and just put this behind me. And that's exactly what I did. Then later, when my children grew up also, I happened to have gone through a divorce after 15 years of marriage. I, I was in a place where I, I had to tell them. So I told all three of my children. And then through them, they wanted to seek justice against their grandfather because they couldn't believe uh, nobody was doing anything. And how can we just move through life without justice? So I was able to call police officers or the police station in um, Ohio and then back in Virginia. And the Virginia one didn't have any statute of limitations, which made the process a little bit easier. And we had enough evidence where my dad at one point admitted to what he did and to also, we had some recordings of him uh, also admitting. So it was a case where he was indicted, convicted, and incarcerated. And throughout that process, you know, you brought up how did the Indian community uh, take it in? Uh, well, they didn't take it in. So my relatives, which I love dearly in India, decided they were just so conflicted and distraught themselves and heartbroken, they didn't know what to do with me. So basically, they were silent and didn't want to talk to me. So they just put a barrier. They didn't want to deal with it. And they felt like I was, they knew something bad had happened and they knew what happened, but they didn't feel a need for me to talk about it. What is the purpose of talking about it now? He's an old man, just let it go. So that relationship with my loving family in India kind of drifted away. My mom, I think she knew what was going later She when she found out. She was extremely upset. She felt like maybe she wasn't a good mother. But at the same time, she felt like she took my dad, I would say, lack of a better word, uh, side. Yeah, so my mom, I think, you know, she knew this was dreadful. And uh, she somehow felt she had to pick between my dad and me. And it was apparent that she was going to be with my dad because she felt she has health needs and she felt that he was the only one who can help her with her health. And even though I disagree with that uh, thought process, I think she felt she didn't want him in jail. And, and that's basically what she said. I don't want him in jail. I'm going to do everything I can to not let him go to jail. So 
in the current situation, I really don't have a relationship with my mom and definitely not my dad. And my Indian relatives have um, also kind of distanced themselves from me. But I think I, I don't have any regrets. Uh, this was the right thing to do. It was one of the most difficult things I had to do. But at the same time, my three children are uh, a primary focus for me. And I don't think if I did anything less, I'm not sure they would have had the respect for me they do now. And how I can't tell them to, you know, speak up, do what's right, uh, even if it's the hardest thing to do, and me not do the same thing. And once this was done, I felt like a whole weight was lifted off my shoulders. Like I said, I have no regrets. Anytime, whether it's a man or a woman that has to make a decision in a situation of sexual assault or sexual abuse to turn your perpetrator in, it is one of the most difficult decisions. The fear of not being believed, number one. And two, well, do you have enough evidence to turn them in for a conviction? Otherwise, uh, you don't see the purpose of turning someone in. And uh, you don't want to just live with it uh, while they're out there. So I think, you know, it's a, it's an extremely different process and a difficult process. And although I am Indian and, it, you know, our country is very much, I think we're not used to talking about difficult matters. We're used to following, being obedient uh, to what parents say and traditions and rituals. And we often throw the conflict aside or just don't talk about it because it's so hard to do. And we don't have enough measures in there where women have the same voice as men. Um, and it is a power thing. It is definitely a, a power control system when your society turns against you because you are a girl and you should just move on with life and not worry about this. You're doing fine. There's no major scars, nothing, you know. Yeah, once in a while, you know, you might have a nightmare here and there. But overall, you're physically doing well, so you should just go on. Uh, and I'm sorry something bad really happened to you. And I think that's the perspective, you know, a lot of Indians take and probably society at large takes on such issues as sexual assault or sexual abuse. Right. No, I, and I'm struck by the fact that you were victimized um, mm -hmm. on a recurring basis by folks that really should have been supporting you. And yet I think your story would give courage to so many survivors because it demonstrates that you did feel a sense of freedom and something lifted off your shoulders when you came forth. Right. Um, and, and I think that, as you mentioned before, it's worth noting that the bond and the partnership in a Hindu mm -hmm. um, relationship and under the um, Vedic rites, it goes beyond just the legalities. It really is like this lifelong obligation you have to a partner. And so it's shocking, I'm sure, to many that would be listening that your mom would choose your father. And yet she also doesn't have many choices available to her. And I don't know what your thoughts are on that. Right. You know, I, I love my mother. I absolutely do not hate her, nor do I have any resentment towards her. But it is uh, this notion of scripture and duty. And oftentimes the duty falls to your family, to your spouse, typically your husband. Women are always sacrificing in one mode or another. And uh, when you sacrifice as a woman, you're doing what's in the best interest of your family is often the perception. And sacrifice typically means following what your male spouse is telling you or whether it's your father or your brother, often a, a predominantly male figure in your family, uh, just following yes. the rules. 
And, and that's what she's doing. So, and that's how she's raised. I don't expect her to go against that. I know my mother loves me. And um, unfortunately, the circumstances are such that I'm 54 and I can handle this now. If I came out and told her something at 10, 11, 12 years of age, I don't know. I don't know what would have happened. I don't know if my mom and my relatives would have said something bad happened, but your dad, you know, he's such a good guy. He's uh, paying for all of these kids' tuition and education. Let's just move on. We'll just make sure it doesn't happen again. And I think, you know, as often as we tell children, you need to say something if something is happening to you, I completely understand the reason why they wouldn't. At 54, I feel good that I came out. I'm still, even though I would tell children to say something, I don't know how my family would have reacted if I came out at a young age, especially in an Indian population, because children definitely don't have a voice. Women, you know, don't, and they may be getting more of a voice now. Children definitely don't, because then they also relate that to who's going to marry you now. What will happen to your brothers or sisters if we want to arrange their marriage? Who's going to look at, you're going to shame the family. Everybody's going to know. Let's not talk about it. And that's how, you know, it it would end up dying and you would just end up suffering in the long run. Yes. No, I mean, I think that martyr theme runs rampant, unfortunately, in our culture. And I think what you also indicated in previous conversations that frequently the men are the moneymakers. So all the more reason that they are respected, revered, and, and sometimes a source of monetary support even to extended family. And as you stated, I think this just perpetuates the need to keep the perpetrator as sort of a hero, in spite of what they're aware that he did to you. Oh, yeah, always. I think uh, even now people, and this is where I said, at 54, I can handle this. I can't handle it as if I was a teenager, where people were saying, "Uh, why did you do this to him? Well, I didn't do anything to him. He did something to me. And now I'm, you know, getting justice for it. So I think family members still think about why did you do this to him? He's an old man. He doesn't need to be there right now. So I think that's the way people are seeing it. And anytime, like I said, nobody wants to be a victim, but anytime a victim does come out, it's taken as a stance of why are you doing this to him? Why are you doing this now? Why didn't you do something earlier? You must have been okay with it. And they think there's ulterior motives as, do you want money from him? Uh, Do you want him to write you in his will? What do you want so we can make this go away? And that wasn't the case in my in my stance, I did not take any of his money. I didn't, I mean, wrote out of, I was wrote out of his will, but it was never about that. So they always think, even if you are raped and you come out within your own family, there must be this ulterior motive and how can we silence you? So, yeah, and I, I, I totally agree. And I think that really is just a patriarchal response. I mean, not recognizing the monetary compensation is such a small um, way to, frequently not even sought by the victims, but certainly nothing that can take away the anguish that you've had to live with and what you have to deal with on a daily basis. Right, right. And, and, and that's the piece of it. And that's what, you know, I had to think about every day as I was going through it, what would happen to my brothers? What would I do? uh, If other people find out, uh, would they shame me? And, uh, and living, like I said, in this uh, patriarchal structure that we are in, I wasn't sure even how the Indian community in India would take it. I didn't know if we would get publicity. And India Abroad picked up the story and it went national. And so people that were reading it were in shock, but they had mixed opinions because, uh, you know, my 
my dad was going to temples and doing all of these charity things that they couldn't believe he would do such a thing. And they still thought maybe I was lying and uh, there's no way he could do this. And so just that power struggle that goes with that. And then you just have to take it in and move on because I knew that might happen, but I didn't realize it would be so overt and being thought of as the bad daughter. You know? Of course, of course. Yeah. And and that ties into sort of this model minority, which follows Indian Americans, Asian Americans. And, you know, it, what strikes me about your story is you are extremely ambitious and you didn't let any of these experiences derail you. You know, that's what brings me along in the interview to talk about your political career. How did you pivot yeah. from where you were to aspiring to be in a leadership role in Manhattan, Kansas? Right. And, you know, I think um, even in, throughout my life, when I tried to just suppress this and move my ordeal behind me, I this fear of being a victim for the rest of my life, I think I wanted to overcompensate that and not let anybody ever find out what happened to me. So it was this trying to prove myself that I am not that. And I think that's when I went into public education, became a teacher and realized I was always interested in politics and thought, well, that's where policies are made. So I was a union leader for a teacher's organization and did well with that. And then when some of these positions came out and the school board of education and our local office, I had a good relationship with the community. And I think the relationship that I had with my community and with my students and parents that I was working with, uh, part of that was because of my childhood experience. When I realized nobody was listening to me, it made me a better listener. I, what I, I knew that was the missing piece. I always felt if somebody was a good listener, maybe I wouldn't have had to go through that in my childhood. So in my adult life, I listened to everybody, regardless of uh, their uh, political stance, uh, who they are, uh, and they know that I will listen to them. And regardless of whether I disagree or agree with them, more often than not, I have respect for what they have to say and their truth, because we all have different life experiences. And that's what made me go into politics. When people see me, uh, you know, until I told them my story, they often thought about, oh, she's an Indian, she must be highly educated, she must have been a straight A student, uh, great at math, and she's ambitious. And all of those were <laughs> false. You know, yes, I am Indian. But no, I graduated with a 1.7 and from high school, I was kicked out of college because I was a straight D student. I had to work for every single thing in my life. And I was divorced. And um, so all of these things just built me to a stronger character where I felt I could not give myself permission to fail and that my children were watching me and I needed to be doing something for them and their future. And then politics paved that way for me. And you know, Kansas is a predominantly red state and being everything that a Kansan is not, but at the same time is, is that being an Indian and an immigrant, a woman of color and uh, divorced at the time when I ran for office, what Kansas had and that I had that were similar was uh, the work ethic, this um, grit, uh, just picking yourself and moving on to the next piece and the next piece and the next piece. And, and that's what worked for me in Kansas. And um, I was thrilled when I was elected the first time and more so the second time. But it doesn't come uh, without all of that work. I mean, to this day, being a minority woman, I will always be 
second guessed or having to constantly prove myself at every decision I make. And I have to have a rationale and still push forward aggressively, whereas a white male counterpart may not need to deal with that. And my sexual abuse and everything that happened in my childhood paved a way to discuss the mental health as a major issue. Uh, being a single woman raising three teenagers paved a path for me to discuss about health care and um, uh, income inequality and um, single moms and raising kids and public education. Being a union leader, I realized public education is the, econ- is the economic driver for the f- future. And those were things that people related with that didn't have anything to do with a Democrat or a Republican that just had to do with issues that we have to deal with every day. And um, I feel uh, privileged that the city of Manhattan, Kansas, uh, trusted me to uh, be their city commissioner and now mayor. So and, and I move aggressively on the things that I need for my community. And I think that's what that's what works for me. In listening to you, I'm struck by the fact that your your life, put the credentials and the resume aside, but your life experiences are exactly the issues that we see on the ballot that matter the most to people. You're correct. A living wage, education, right. how many single moms are out there, and, and also your ability to listen. I think all too often, and we see it so much today, politicians are, are speaking, but all of your experiences have uh, made you very poised to listen to your constituents. And um, I wonder what you're hearing right now, whether a miss COVID, whether the upcoming election. Yeah, what are you hearing? Sure. You know, I think um, COVID-19 has definitely brought up everything we should be discussing. And I think in um, Manhattan, Kansas, I had, I was moving pretty aggressively towards public health side because I knew this virus was going to take over if we didn't put in certain measures. And fortunately, the Kansas State University decided they made a decision not to have students come back after spring break. And our governor decided, you know, we can't have K-12 schools open. So those were two instrumental decisions that were made. But for the mayor of city, as a mayor for city of Manhattan, we were going to have the uh, St. Patrick's Day parade, St. Patrick's Day race. And the only role that I could play was getting the permit revoked. And uh, that came with a lot of turmoil. The community didn't want it revoked. Even all the city commissioners didn't uh, agree with it. But I felt that was the direction to go. And we had to have a special meeting uh, to revoke the permits. And then later on, we have this big thing called fake Patty's day. And a lot of discussions went into that. And finally they also made a decision not to have that. So every single thing that I put forward as far as not having shops open at certain times and working with our local health officer, making sure that everybody's taking the precautions. And every time I had a comment or a public comment to make, I would aggressively tell people we really do need to stay at home. This is happening. And I did get, uh, you know, uh, what is it? pushback from a a couple of city commissioners that said we should just let everybody go and let the virus go, let it happen, and we should just move on with our lives. No, that is not the way to go, and we should not be doing that. We really need to be cautious. And the most vulnerable people were dying. When I look at counties that are in my state where a lot of African Americans were being hospitalized and dying, and people weren't really talking about the race issue, and public education. It's hard for parents that are at home and now have children at home, but they also have to make sure they're getting an education and you're working full time. And you don't even know if you have a job when you have 30 million people out of a job. So the economic stressors, the family environment has shifted dramatically. And that's helped 
at least me, uh, be a stronger leader because I can speak to those issues. But at the same time, one of the promises I made to my community was I'm going to be aggressive and stay at home orders and everything we need to do for public health. But I'm also going to be equally aggressive and trying to get our economy back up, uh, but in a slow, measured, phased manner. And then with that, I decided uh, after several conversations to set up the uh, Manhattan Area Recovery Task Force with uh, 24 different individuals from all sectors of life. And um, and that's helped r- remove uh, the politics out of it and let them guide the way, uh, but in a measured way. So I feel good that we're doing all of that. And as a teacher, I always felt if you're handed a curriculum, what you do is you learn it, you collaborate with your colleagues, and then you try to set, set your students up for success. And my goal right now is to set my community up for success as we slowly reopen. And the only way we are going to know we are successful is if we keep people out of the hospital. Uh, We are going to have an increase in COVID positives because we are testing more. But the goal is to make sure you are self-isolating, you are quarantining yourself, and we wear face masks and we take all the guidelines so that's going to be a hard push forward. That's, and I had to pause my U.S. Senate campaign so that I am completely focused on that. And that's where I've been for the past uh, two months and will continue to be for a little bit longer because it's necessary. I don't like to see people unemployed. I don't like to drive around my community and have it be so dead right now. But unfortunately, we don't have a treatment. We don't have a vaccination. And the only mode that controls all of this is social distancing. So it's been a struggle. It hasn't been easy, but I feel it is the right thing to do once again. And uh, of course, yeah. of course. And uh, how is your community doing in terms of the number of cases and sort of the prognosis for opening up? Right. So right now, I think we have we don't have too many cases. We only we only have maybe fifty or sixty cases, and I think hospitalizations they come and go. But the reason is we don't have twenty thousand students in our community right now. K students are all have all left. Uh, K twelve, we don't have six thousand students mingling around with each other, so that adds to it. If that shifts, and that's when our numbers will shift. Right now, everybody's adhering really closely to the guidelines that were set out by our governor and our local communities, and and myself as well. But once we get those students back, and people, we've as a city, we've shut down our pools and we've shut down our um, summer sports because there's no way you can manage social distancing in a pool. If a lifeguard has to save a, a, a child or someone who's swimming, you don't know if they're going to do mouth-to-mouth resuscitation, if they're going to do first aid, because it's, it's a scary time right now to do that sort of stuff. So for those reasons, our community is going to do okay. My problem is once we do start opening up and we get people from hot spots coming into our community, our we have the right testing and everything, but those numbers are going to increase. And I do, I am worried and concerned about our hospitals and what kind of patient level they can handle at that point. Those are the decisions that the university is talking about right now, as well as our public education system. That's going to shift the next few months dramatically. Um, when you have half your population leave town, it's easier to manage, but that's not going to be forever. So that's what we need to prepare for. Quite a lot going on as the mayor of Manhattan, Kansas. And, you know, I do want to ask you, what has been the most rewarding aspect of coming forward as a survivor? And what has been the response from the survivor community to your story? Yeah, no, it's been uh, very positive. Uh, I've received lots of positive feedback from uh, survivors themselves and also from the 
professionals in social work and in um, mental health. Uh, a lot of them know that there's a, you know, one of their clients has been abused and their client is very reluctant to take it to, uh, to report it because you don't want to lose your parents or you don't want to lose your friends and you're, you don't have to want to prove yourself all the time. So they were embracing the story and many came out and said, yeah, that happened to me too. So the other piece to this is we all handle it differently. Not all of us are going to report it. Not all of us are going to seek counseling. Not all of us are going to face our perpetrators. And some of us may never tell anybody till the day we die. Uh, Most of them haven't even told their spouses or their own family members. It's very difficult to talk about. But when someone like me does talk about it, and being um, a leader in the community, they understand that, wow, it happened to her. And uh, it makes them feel, in a small way, it gives them some, some relief that they're not alone, that it didn't just happen to them. And it doesn't, sexual abuse and um, sexual assault, assault doesn't have a, a, a demographic. It has nothing to do with uh, uh, being in poverty uh, or an education level or being uh, African-American or Indian or white or a religion. Uh, it shouldn't have happened in my family. And, and it did. And my parents were married. We had, and you know, money coming in. We were not poor by any means. We were well-traveled, well-educated, and this still happened. So I think it gives them a sense of uh, commonality, and it makes them a little bit stronger, uh, knowing that they're not alone, and that we all deal with it in our own way. There's no right or wrong way to deal with such an issue. Uh, And that has to be respected at the same time. You can't force somebody to talk about something they're not ready to talk about. Uh, But it was absolutely. Yeah, it was it was a good positive reaction from my community. Well, I have to ask a rather timely question. And I need not need not reflect sort of your political beliefs. But, you know, in terms of the current two candidates that we have for the presidential election and your thoughts on Biden and the accuser that's coming forward, you know, any comments or thoughts you have on right. that? Yeah, I definitely think it needs to be researched and uh, see, you know, what went on, what was the truth and what isn't. And and the same thing needs to be done for President Trump. Well, the thing that made me extremely upset was when I was watching the Brett Kavanaugh confirmation. And that's kind of what's happening with Joe Biden. And I feel like if someone came out and whether it's this individual or another woman or anybody else that comes out, it needs to be vetted and thoroughly checked. But I also know as a survivor, if someone just decided to do a background check on me, it would have taken them a long time to find anything unless I had the recordings. If I didn't have recordings and emails from my own dad, it would have been very difficult for me to prove anything. And the last thing I would want to be is called a liar. And, you know, when I was going to court with uh, with this situation, I was worried that uh, my dad was going to plead not guilty and that I was going to be called a liar. So I believe the woman that came out and said what she said, that she was sexually assaulted. And um, the turmoil that she's going to go through is going to be nothing compared to what Joe Biden is going to go through. Joe Biden's, you know, he's a man. He's going to go off and do whatever he has to do. But this young woman is, this woman is going to probably get a lot of threats She's probably going to be called all kinds of names and her life will be changed forever. So I wish, uh, you know, people that take this seriously also understand 
what it takes a woman like that for her to say something. And, uh, and that's why people don't come out because of the circus that happens in such situations. But I do think um, whether I believe Joe Biden or the individual that has been sexually assaulted, both of them need to be vetted thoroughly because it's high stakes in the political area of being a president. And uh, it's true. And it reminds me quite a bit of your story that she was victimized by Joe Biden. Then again, she is going to be victimized, as you stated, by mm -hmm. the public, the media and the scrutiny that comes along with it. I also would look to let's look at the culture that is creating a situation approaching women in this manner. And that's a whole other conversation. I certainly do mm -hmm. intend to have with you <laughs> at, a, at a certain time. But you know, what's creating this, this toxic culture, whereby women are victimized, you know, across all lines, socioeconomic, racial lines, you name it. Right. Yeah, I think it's this, I won't say just women, victims are resilient, and they just want to move on. You know, they just want to move on. One of the reasons, that, another reason I didn't come out earlier is because I didn't want to be known as, oh, that woman that was sexually abused. You don't want that tag after you every single time. Uh, but now that I have a variety of titles, I don't mind that being applied to me anymore. But when you are young and coming out like this, especially um, if you don't have a different title to your name that already people can uh, reflect on, you will be known as that woman that was sexually assaulted. And that's why people don't want to say anything. And they always say, you're going to play the victim card. There is no victim card. Nobody has ever gained any profit by playing the victim card. So that needs to go away. The society has definitely been more favorable to men than it has to women. And people often consider the invisible scars of sexual abuse and sexual assault and rape to be just that, invisible. You can prove a broken leg or a heart attack, but you can't prove the impact of sexual abuse and sexual assault. So they will look at her or any other victim as, um, you're fine, you're moving on with life. Why do you have to say anything now? You know, you can't prove it and all of these things. We haven't gotten to the point where saying this is wrong and men have not been trained to say this is wrong and you shouldn't be doing this to women, whether it's in a fraternity or a sorority or any organizations. We haven't raised our boys uh, to say this is wrong and not to be bystanders anymore. And that's the culture that Joe Biden was raised in, as well as Trump was raised in, when there were so many bystanders that just seemed like a normal life, like boys will be boys kind of thing. And we have not gotten to the level where, no, you, boys don't need to do that. And the reason I got divorced from my husband was, even though our marriage, you know, was not a, a great marriage, I didn't want my children to think that's what good looks like and you just have to live with it. Nobody should have to live with anything. And uh, I think the our culture puts a lot on, on women to just have to live with it and move on, whether it's in a job, whether it's in a leadership position, whatever it is. Uh, the bar is much higher for a woman to look successful and they make it easy to put the victim title on any woman for any reason. And that's why women don't say anything about, especially when it comes to intimate matters as sex. It's absolutely correct. And I think you're giving us perspectives while wow, as a survivor, which we just are not hearing enough. And I think that you bring up the point that anyone who comes forward, what is the gain? There really is no net gain whatsoever. So that's just a ludicrous concept. What uh, they are striving for is some sort of justice and, and to be heard and believed, most of all. So right. thank you so much for sharing that perspective. We just don't hear it enough. 
Yeah. Yeah, no, I agree with you. I think um, it falls on us to do that. Yeah. That brings us to the end of another edition of a Daisy Woman podcast. Thank you to Usha Reddy and all our listeners for joining us today. Until next time, I'm your host, Sonia Gokhale.